Well, this morning we are going to be looking at Luke, believe it or not, even though the next passage is really good. We are going to be looking at your liberties in Christ and your responsibilities to others. Every year before Halloween, the elders have to deal with it. What are we going to do with Halloween? You know, what are we going to let people do? And what are we not going to let people do? And, you know, what if people want to have a costume? And, you know, if we say, oh, it's okay to celebrate Halloween as long as we dress in God-honoring costumes, because after all, there's nothing wrong with costumes, there's nothing wrong with candy and having fun, and so we're just going to have a Halloween celebration, then there's those who go, hey, 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 hey. Halloween is a pagan holiday. That celebrates the dead and witchcraft and ghouls. I mean, how could we do that? So then we say, okay, okay, what we'll do is we're going to offer an alternative to Halloween. And we're going to call it Reformation Day or Harvest Day or whatever. And, uh, you know, we're still going to dress up, but in God-honoring costumes and still have the candy. But it will be celebration of the Reformation. And then some people say, wait, wait a minute here. Are you trying to sanctify a pagan holiday? Are you trying to, you know, take something pagan and kind of, you know, put a little, you know, Christian cloak on it? It's still pagan. What are we doing? So then we say, okay, we're not doing anything. Go home and, you know, do this. La, la, la. Turn off all your lights so no one comes to your house and just hide. And then that way, you know, we'll be, we'll be holy. Or maybe we could just rent some place away from civilization. I'll go out to the middle of the Mojave Desert and just sit there until the day goes by. And that way we'll be right with God. And then some people say, hey, you know, listen, there's nothing wrong with costumes. There's nothing wrong with candy. And you guys are being legalists because the Bible doesn't say those things are wrong. We can have an alternative day. And so no matter what we do, some people are offended. And when they're offended, they come talk to me. And then I got to deal with it. It doesn't matter if the whole elder board decides I'm the bad guy. And so the whole problem, though, is one of Christian liberties and personal conviction. See, sometimes the elders, because we are called to shepherd the flock of God, we have to regulate what we're going to do in this body of believers. The problem is, is we have believers who are very young and believers very old. Believers who know the scriptures and those who don't. Believers who have certain weaknesses and those who don't. Believers who came out of certain backgrounds. And, and you know, there's so many variables to try and regulate. An area of personal conviction and liberty is just, it's next to impossible. But since we are called to do this as elders, I mean, make decisions and have to make a decision. We are forced uh, by the scriptures to try and create some sort of rule by which Calvary Bible Church is going to operate. We don't want to regulate people's consciences. We can't regulate them. But we must take a stand and say, this is what we're going to do. And we want you to know we're not doing it because we think we're supposed to regulate your conscience. We just have to do it because we have to make a decision. 
So what we do is we uh, discuss the scriptures, we talk about all the pros and cons, we, we talk about all the different aspects and kind of say, you know, what about this? What about nothing? What about alternative day, pros and cons? And, and concerning Halloween, we have decided this year that on Halloween night, we're going to offer an alternative celebration and we are not going to do costumes because we don't want to parallel the world too much and make people think we're celebrating Halloween when we're not. Even though we have no problem with costumes that are glorifying to God, we're just not going to do it here. And I'm sorry if you've already got your costume ready, but um, that's just how it is. And uh, we're, we're going to do that. So kids who want to come here and do something fun that isn't involved in ghouls and witches and stuff, can do it um, in a wholesome atmosphere. So we've decided that that's what we're going to do. Okay? Now, to some, our decision may seem a little bit legalistic. You mean no costumes? And to others, it's going to be a little bit libertine. It's on the same day? But... You know, we have to make decisions. We have to lead. And and again, we know that it's out of our scriptural range to think that we should create personal convictions in you or direct your liberties specifically. But we do have to make decisions for the body in an attempt not to offend people and yet um, still do what is right. Um, That's what we've decided. And so you just need to accept it since the scriptures say submit to your elders. Okay, now let's just leave Halloween out of here for a minute and let's talk about some other things. You know, there's a lot of other things in your life that you have to regulate that aren't specifically addressed in the word of God. Uh, Drinking, uh, alcohol, smoking, uh, politics, uh, appropriate dress, secular music, TV, movies, uh, all sorts of things like that, which, you know, are not specifically dressed, addressed uh, you know, I mean, the Bi- Bible say to dress modestly, but well, what does that mean? How long does a dress have to be? You know, how high up the neckline? You know, how thick the material? You see, it just doesn't give us that. It just says modest. And now it's up to each individual then to apply the band-aid to their life. And you know what? Fact is, the way you're going to apply it um, is going to be different than me. For instance, you know, you can go to Belgium today and after the service, you know, the the men walk out in the foyer and uh, have uh, beer and cigars. And and there's no problem with that. If you were to come go there and say, you know, why are you doing this? They'd say, why not? And then what would you say? What verse would you point to? You know, there's all of these things that happen. For instance, when I was in Russia, you celebrate communion and all of a sudden, you know, they drink real wine in their communion cups. I mean, what if this morning, you know, and you know, when you, you had a little Cabernet Sauvignon in there. I could just hear all the people gasping. This is real wine. My, Mike, you know, 12 year old son just drank wine, you know, and people would probably freak out. I'm sure they would. I know they would. And you know what? In Russia, if you drink, you're, you can you can't even be a Christian. I mean, they, they are so against drinking over there that they can't imagine. But when it comes to communion, the Bible says wine. It says wine. 
So why are you doing, I mean, it doesn't say grape juice. And some people say, well, the wine in New Testament times was actually grape juice. No, it wasn't. You can't get drunk with grape juice. See, we have all these things that this happens, you know, uh, sometimes, you know, we're, 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 you know, baptizing people and, you know, do, do, do three dips or one dip, you know, do do father, son, Holy Spirit or father, son, Holy Spirit. See, <laughs> and we may say, well, I can't, I can't fellowship with you because you, you do three times, you know, well, I can't, you know, fellowship with you because you don't do water baptism or you do sprinkling and well yeah well do you drink wine when you do oh no i don't do that i can't fellowship with you see there's all these different things that sometimes you get really sloppy i mean we will die on one hill and be totally ignorant and actually hypocritical in in neglecting something else in our own life and this all has to do with christian liberties for instance, let's say you're walking down San Fernando Boulevard uh, here in Burbank and uh, it's a Saturday, it's a nice day and all of a sudden you, you happen upon me and there I am sitting in front of a bar having a beer, smoking a cigar. And you're a little bit taken back because I'm wearing black leather pants. <laughs> And I've got and I've got a black leather vest on with no shirt on underneath. <laughs> I have multiple earrings in each ear. And I have a post in my right eyebrow in the shape of a cross. I have a post in my lower lip with the master seminary symbol on it. I have a tattoo on one arm that says repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and in the other arm God loves you with the cross. My hair is all spiked up, several different shades, fluorescent colors. On each wrist, I have a big leather band with spikes sticking out. I have a large belt buckle with a picture of Eric Clapton on it. And there I am, reading my Bible, having a quiet time on a nice, beautiful Saturday afternoon. Now, you have a problem with that? Do you think the elders would have a problem with that? (laughs) Now, does the Bible say drinking beer is a sin? No. Does the Bible say smoking is a sin? No. Does the Bible say wearing black leather is a sin? No. Does the Bible say wearing earrings is sin or only women can wear earrings? No. Are eyebrow posts and lip posts forbidden in the word of God? No. How about evangelistic tattoos? No. Does the word of God forbid that we dye our hair? Well, if it does, women. (laughs) Or is it only let women do that? Is spiked up hair a sin? Wristbands, are they a sin? No. How about a belt buckle with Eric Clapton? No. And surely reading your Bible is not a sin. So there I am. I mean, what's your problem? (laughs) What is your problem? See, all these things would be liberties, things I could do. But I want you to know, I am never going to do that. (laughs) Well, why not? Why not? 
Well, that's why we're here this morning. <laughs> and that's why we're going to be here next week and the week after that, I imagine, to do it a preemptive strike before Halloween gets here. Every Christian struggles with these whole areas of personal convictions. And I want you to know, a lot of people have never even thought through the issues. They, they feel very certain that th- certain things are wrong, but they're totally blind to other things that other people are certain are wrong. And here we all are in the same congregation. We all have to love each other. We all have to obey God and we all have to do what is right. And yet we all do different things. And how can that be? Well, because there are certain things that you have liberty to do and certain personal convictions that you form for your own life and those are different. They're different for everyone. You know, you may have a right to do certain things and you may have that right, but that doesn't mean you should do it. You know, you may think you have a right to do something and it may be because you're ignorant of what the scriptures say and you may be doing it and it may be sinful. Because you don't know what the scriptures say. You see, we're all living together in this local body of believers in a world of believers and unbelievers. And they're all looking at us and we're a witness to them. We have to love each other. We have to think of other people as more important than ourselves. And I want you to know this whole idea of liberties and your responsibilities to others is very complex. But it's very fun. And I want you to know as we work through this, I am probably going to free some of you up and bind some of you tighter. And it's not going to solve our problem. At the end of this series, we are not all going to have the same personal convictions. I am sorry. It's just not going to achieve that end. It will help us understand things, and I think it would probably move a lot of people to form more personal convictions than they've had before and understand why. And I think some of you, it will lighten you up a little bit when you see somebody that doesn't have the same convictions as you and you need it. And so that's what we're going to be talking about. John Feinberg, in his work, Ethics for a Brave New World, defines Christian liberty with these words, quote, Christian liberty involves practices not covered in Scripture by a moral absolute that either commands or forbids them. Such activities, scripturally speaking, are morally indifferent. Still, because of social and cultural background, individuals may find such practices offensive, end quote. Having raised the issue, I want to begin this week by laying kind of a doctrinal foundation of motivations. Everything you do, you do for a reason. So this morning, we want to look at motivations, why you do what you do. Then next week, we're going to finish up that, and then we'll start looking at scriptures, which specifically address how we are to use our liberties in Christ. And then I think... The week after that, and of course, I don't know the future, but I imagine after that, uh, we'll probably just, you know, apply this to some really fun issues. You know, all those things, those, you know, cultural taboos for Christian. We'll just go through and just kind of work through and, you know, maybe we'll all be smoking cigars and drinking beer after that. I don't know. Um, we'll see. But the point is, is I want to go slow here. And I want to have you think through these issues. You may think I'm going a little bit too far one way and I'm doing that on purpose. I'm going to try and torment you. 
And uh, I want you to think through the issues and think through them carefully so that you can live before God and before other people in a way that shows love to both. So first, let's start discussing our six different motivations or factors that cause those who profess to know Christ to do what they do. The first is the glory of God. Everybody knows that the glory of God is, you know, the all-encompassing, giant, motivating factor, or at least should be for every Christian. And we need to be living our life in a way that gives God glory. And we do this in two primary ways. One, by loving God, and another, by loving other people. I think we all know that when the Pharisees came up to Jesus and they asked him, what is the great commandment? What did he say? He said this in Matthew 22, verses 36 through 40. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophet. Prophets, what Jesus is saying is this, is that when you love God and you love your neighbor, there isn't a command in the Bible that can't be categorized under those two commands. They encompass every command God ever gives, every one that he gives. In other words, what Jesus is saying is this, when you love God, you do it two ways. By loving him directly and by loving other people. That's how you love God. That's the only way you love God. For instance, if you look at the Ten Commandments, how are they divided up? The first four speak about how to love God directly. The last six talk about how to love God indirectly. And that's what the scriptures say. Do you remember in Matthew 25, verses 34 through 40? This is in the Olivet Discourse when they came to Jesus and say, what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? And he talks about all these things. At the end, he talks about the second coming. He uses metaphorically uh, sheep and goats to describe the separation of believers from unbelievers. The believers being sheep, the goats being unbelievers. And, he, and, and after that, he says this in Matthew 25, 34. Then the king will say to those in his right, come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me and I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger invite you in or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, truly, I say to you that the extent that you did it to the least of these brothers of mine, what? You did it to me. By loving other people, you love God. By loving your brothers and sisters in Christ, you love God. That's what the scriptures teach. Jesus said in John 13, 35, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples. If you have what love for one another, Paul says in Romans 12, 10, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Paul says in Galatians 5, 13, for you are called for freedom, brethren, speaking of Christian liberties. Only do not turn your freedom, your Christian liberties, into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Love for other people is to regulate our liberties in Christ. 
John says in 1 John 3.10, By this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. Love, again, is an indicator that you are saved. I think most of us know that we are to glorify God because most of us know this one key verse. It's in 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whether you eat or drink... Or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. I think most of us know that verse. But I think if I were to say right now, if you can't tell me the context, you're going to drop dead. How many of you would still be alive? See, a lot of people have know that verse, but they don't know the context of that verse. Let me tell you what it is. Let me read the last two, the two verses that follow it and And see if you can figure out what the context is. Paul says this, starting in 1 Corinthians 10, 32. Give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many so that they may be saved. You see that? What is the context? Exercising your Christian liberties. And we're going to be getting into these texts next week. Yeah, Paul says, listen, don't offend any Jews, don't offend any Gentiles, don't offend any believers. Do everything so that no offense is given in. Well, that's hard to do because sometimes no matter what you do, you give offense. But that is a regulating principle. The context, though, is clear. We are to make sure that in giving glory to God, we show love to other people. This is the granddaddy regulating principle for your Christian liberties. Now, following from that and subcategories of that would be biblical mandates. Biblical mandates are to guide your life in what you do. Biblical mandates are commands found in scripture that God gives to you to tell you what you must do or not do. If you don't obey biblical mandates, you're sinning. God wants you to obey his word. So in the context of exercising your liberty, you cannot violate any scripture commands. You can't. And as a matter of fact, if you think about it, if there is a command, then it's not a liberty. It's regulated. And again, we're not talking about earning your salvation here. Salvation is a free gift. We're not saying that if you obey God, then you get God to like you or you earn your salvation so you get to go to heaven. No. What we're saying is, is as a believer, one who is already saved and on their way to heaven, you need to regulate your life by biblical mandate and submit to the word of God. Jesus said in John 14, verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. He goes on to say in verse 21, he who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and disclose myself to him. Then he goes on to say in verse 23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and and we will come to him and make our abode with him. In the next chapter, John fifteen ten, Jesus says, For if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commands and abide in his love. In 1 John 2, 5, we read, But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. And by this, we know that we are in him. 
In 1 John 5, 3, we read, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. The scriptures are clear that the only way a believer can ever show love to God is by obeying the scriptures. There is no other way. You can't be in a rebellion against God and say, well, I love you as I rebel against you. That just doesn't work. Notice none of these texts, though, say we need to keep God's commands so we can be saved. But we keep these commands because we are saved. They are not the condition of our salvation They are an indicator or the result or consequence of our salvation. And the Bible contains many commands and we can't break any of those or we're sinning. So we have the glory of God. We have biblical mandate. And now we start getting into a little bit fuzzier area. The third regulating principle. The things that motivate Christians are these principles found in the word of God. They're not necessarily commands, but they're derived from the scriptures. Principles derived from the scriptures. They're timeless truths and they're timeless and never changing because they're rooted in the character and nature of God. For instance, you're studying Genesis 22 and Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac. He goes up there, he binds up Isaac, puts him on the wood. He's going to slam. God stops him. Now, even that, though that text is talking about, you know, picturing, I think, Christ and his sacrifice and just sacrifice in general. And the scriptures clearly show, if you read the context, that God says he did this in order to test Abraham to see if you really had faith in him. And Abraham did, and he passed the test. But there is a principle here, and it is this. As a parent, you need to love God more than your children. That is a clear principle you can derive from that text. And even though it's not the main point of the passage, it is still a timeless truth, which applies to every time, in every location, in every culture. You need to make sure you don't put your children above God. Let's say you're studying the book of Leviticus and you know that Christ fulfilled the sacrificial system. And you're out there saying, you know, Jack, I I don't offer sacrifices. I've never offered, you know, any animals up and slit their throat and drained out their blood. You know, I haven't roasted any lobes of the kidney on the altar as a soothing aroma to the Lord. You know, that Jesus fulfilled the sacrificial system. Well, then maybe you should take Leviticus and just tear it out of your Bible. Why not? Because Leviticus is the word of God. And heaven and earth will pass away and not one jot or tittle will pass away from Leviticus until all is accomplished. And believe me, it hasn't been. And even though we aren't under the sacrificial system, all of Leviticus contains principles by which we are to live our lives. For instance, is God still holy like he was in Leviticus? Yeah. Well, let me ask you this. Are men still sinners like they were in Leviticus? Yeah. Now, is it still true as a universal principle that no one can approach a holy God unless they have a innocent blood sacrifice applied to them? Yeah. You can't approach God apart from the blood of Christ. You can't do it. And this is just a few examples of many, many principles that are found in the book of Leviticus. And if you were to study that, you come across those principles, you extract them, you have to live by them. And if you don't, you're sinning. 
Paul says in Romans 15, 4, but whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, that is to tell us what to do, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of scriptures, we might have hope. And when he says whatever was written in earlier times, he's speaking of the Old Testament. Paul speaking to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, which is a major text on Christian liberties, talks about how the Corinthians fell into all these different sins. And in verse 6, he says, now these things happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. In other words, what is recorded in the Old Testament isn't just for historical memorabilia's sake. It's to make sure you don't sin. Or, to put it the other way, to make sure you do what is right. He goes on in verse 11 and says, Now these things, speaking of all these examples, happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. All these things that are recorded in the, in the Old Testament are for your instruction. So you know how to live your life as a New Testament believer. The failures of Israel are to help you live holy lives. And God wants you to submit to those principles. Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.15 through 17, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings, speaking of the Old Testament, which are able to give you wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Is that still important? I think so. All scripture is inspired by God, He has just referenced the Old Testament and profitable for teaching, reproof or correction for training in righteousness that what the man of God might be adequately equipped or thoroughly furnished for every good work. That is what all the scriptures are for, not just the New Testament. And even though we aren't under the law of Moses and the New Testament makes that crystal clear. There are still principles derived on the character and nature of God, which are in all the scriptures that we must live by. Otherwise, we just take the Old Testament, rip it out and pitch it. I mean, why carry around the extra weight? (laughs) Throw out three-fourths of the Bible. There's a difficulty, though. And this is where things get fuzzy. Depending on your understanding of the Bible, depending on your training in how to interpret the Bible... Depending on your diligence in studying the Bible, the time you spent meditating in the Bible, your biases, your personal weaknesses, your past experiences will often cause you to see principles in a different way from the scriptures. I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but I imagine you have probably every week. You know, we're going through some passage and all of a sudden I'm explaining the passage and you're out there and you're thinking, I've never seen that. But there it is. Right there in the text. There it is. You know what? This happens to me every week. I study the passage. I try and interpret it. I get all my preliminary conclusions done. Then I read all these commentaries and it's like, whoa, I missed that. Oh, I missed that. Oh, there it is. Oh, then I come and tell you and I only tell you a fraction of what I found. Why is that? Because the word of God is deep and it's wide. And so there are many principles that upon diligent digging and studying, you find. Well, see, if you've never done the study I've done, or I've never done the study you've done, we may have principles there that we feel very strong about, but we don't know the other parts of Scripture because we haven't studied everything as thoroughly as we could, or maybe ever. And so now how we live our life may be radically different, though we both feel very justified and right before God and doing what we're doing. 
And this moves us into fuzzier matters still. The glory of God, biblical mandates, biblical principles, and now fuzzier still, personal convictions. A personal conviction is a self-imposed regulation which you make for yourself based on biblical mandates, scriptural principles, personal weaknesses, or goals you have for your life. Let's say you're reading the command in Deuteronomy 6, 7, teach your children diligently. Now, we say, well, even though we're not under the law of Moses, the scriptures in the New Testament say the same thing. And, and, and there's a principle there, which is we are to train our children in the things of the Lord diligently. Okay, does that mean we're all going to train our children exactly the same way? No. You know what? We could have 50 parents and all of them train their children diligently and all train them differently and all be obeying God. Because... There is room there for how you go about obeying that command. It's a matter of personal conviction. If you read any biography of any godly man or woman, you come across these things that are just kind of shocking, that convict you. Because as you're reading about their life, you realize that every single day they got up at 5 a.m. You know, that they, they drove around and, uh, and uh, you know, on a horse and only read the Bible when they did that. You could talk to people today, you know, well, I only listen to sermon tapes. Whenever I'm in my car, that's all I listen to. Or I only read the Bible and Christian books. I don't read any fiction. Or I don't watch TV. I don't even have a TV. Or I never go to shows. Or you know what? I don't even go around alcohol because I know I came out of alcoholism. Or when Halloween comes, I just hide in my closet because I came out of witchcraft or whatever. You see, all these people have all of these different weaknesses and strengths and propensities and biases and different knowledge of the scriptures. And so when you get to personal convictions, man, it just gets messy. It gets really messy. The Bible does not say we have to do certain things that if you read any biography, any of the great godly men or women, they all did these certain things. Now, they weren't telling other people they had to do them, but for their life, this is what they had to do. They have to do this. If they're going to walk in the Lord, if they're going to grow in their walk with the Lord, they have to impose upon themselves certain restraints so that they don't waste time, so they redeem uh, the time for the days are evil. Just, to, just imagine uh, all the possibilities of how you could apply that verse. What does that mean? What, what does that mean? It may be always driving the speed limit and never below it so you can get to where you're going faster so you'll have time to do what you're supposed to do more. You know, I mean, think about it. There, you know, you could justify a lot of time things with that verse. And all of you would say, well, you don't have to redeem the time, you know, which means, you know, no TV, which means no fun reading, which means denying yourself two hours of sleep every night that you would like, but you're not going to do it because you're going to use it for the Lord. Well, three hours, four hours, five hours, you know, see, how do you do that? Well, let me just, let me just uh, tackle the classic, uh, one of the classic, uh, you know, cultural Christians don't do this things and. Well, smoking, smoking. You know, let's just say that, uh, you know, you see me in front of the cafe cafe one day, I'm smoking a cigarette. And I say, hey, would you like a smoke? And you say, no. 
And in your mind, biblical principle strictly forbids me smoking. And you're thinking, you know, Pastor Jack, you should know about this. You should know what the Bible says about this. So, well, you know what? I looked it up in the concordance. I never found the word smoking in the Bible. <laughs> and you say, yes, but you know that 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 says, Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy and that is what you are. And you say, aha! Everybody knows smoking's bad for you. And here you are smoking and your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And God's going to destroy you if you keep smoking. And so I say, tell me, what is the context of 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17? And that's when your eyes kind of go sideways. Because you realize you've learned that verse out of context, which is a very dangerous thing to do. And so I tell you, well, let me just tell you what the context is. Paul is talking about building up the church. And if anybody tries to tear down the church, God will judge them. Sorry, that one doesn't work. You want to smoke? (laughs) Then you say, oh, well, hold on a second. I know another verse. 1 Corinthians 6.19 says, or do you not know your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, that you are not your own? And I say, do you know the context of that verse? And then you get that deer in the head like, look again, like, "Uh uh-oh. No, no, I don't. Let me tell you. In that context, Paul is talking about engaging in immorality. He's saying because you are saved and because... The Holy Spirit dwells in you and Christ dwells in you. Don't engage in immorality because you will be uniting Christ and the Holy Spirit with immorality. The principle would be don't engage in any sin because Christ and the Holy Spirit dwell in you. Where is this whole thing about smoking in here? Where's the principle about don't harm your body? I don't see it. And now you've lost all your ammo. And you realize that now what you thought before was clear cut after looking at the context. Now you're, maybe you should smoke. (laughs) And you realize that in your zeal to do what is right and to help me do what is right, it was actually you who was doing what is wrong and you were twisting the scriptures and I was just following along with what the word of God says. Do you want another smoke? But then I can see that you're really distraught. I can see you're starting to hyperventilate. So I say, you know, I better cut you some slack. So I say, okay, okay, okay. Let's just assume for a minute that that first text you quoted, the First Corinthians three sixteen and 17 text, let's just say for a minute that there is this inkling principle in there. Since I am a member of the church, and since I, if, if I hurt myself, And since I'm a member of the church, I'm hurting the church. Therefore, by that double degree thing, even though that's not what the context is talking about, there is, you know, a fairly desperate but possibly clear principle there that I shouldn't be harming my body. Okay. 
you say, so are you going to quit smoking? Put that thing out. I said, well, let me just ask you a few questions. Do you eat sugar? Do you eat too much salt? Do you wear sunscreen every time you go outside? Do you drink eight eight glasses of water a day every time you eat? And of course, you always eat three meals a day. Do you always eat from all four food groups? (laughs) And of course... You would never eat anything but organic food because pesticides are harmful. Do you get eight hours of sleep a day? Are you overweight? You know, these things are bad for you. Do you see how that is? Now, here you are. You're fine with engaging in all of these things that are bad for you. And you're going to now pick on me. Are you going to apply this principle to your whole life or just to me and my smoking? This is the kind of thing that happens in the church and people are totally blind to it. They're totally blind to it. And you're sitting there. You don't know what to say. And so I say, I can't hear you. (laughs) So you walk away grieved. Because you're a man who practices many things that are harmful to your body and now you don't know what to say. But you go home, you start reading your Bible, you make sure, you know, you think, you know, I'm going to go read those contexts that, you know, just to make sure that, you know, I didn't miss something. I am going to read the context now. So you start looking in 1 Corinthians 6 and you get to verse 12 and you go, aha, you struck oil. I can't wait to find him again so I can give him this verse. I know this is in context now. And this is what you read in 1 Corinthians 6, 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. Speaking of Christian liberties. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. And you think to yourself, I know now. Cigarette smoking is addictive. And I know that if he's smoking, he's probably addicted to cigarettes. And... And he's mastered by them and that is a sin. And so he has to stop. And so the next morning you're kind of wandering around my favorite cafe waiting for me. And I show up, I'm smoking. And you're, I've got a verse. (laughs) Sit right down here. I have something to tell you. And so you show me and say, friend, You're mastered by cigarettes. I mean, how many cigarettes do you smoke a day? Well, you know, a pack, maybe two. A little harder to smoke at work. Don doesn't let me smoke in the office. (laughs) So I have to sneak out and it kind of interrupts my study time. So I don't get as many smoked during my days working. Of course, it's hard to smoke when you're preaching. (laughs) And so you say, well, Those things are, they have control of you. You are mastered by that. And I say, so what you're saying is because I smoke one cigarette after another and there never a day goes by when I don't do that, that I'm being mastered by that. You're saying, that's right and it's forbidden. So I said, well, could I ask you a few questions? (laughs) When's the last 
time you went out, went a whole day without a cup of coffee. How many days have you gone last week without watching any TV? How many days have you gone by without you logging on to the internet? How many days have you gone by last week or last month without eating any sugar or desserts? And like the man in the parable of the wedding feast who was not dressed appropriately, you are speechless because you realize there are a lot of things you do every day. And what do you do? What do you do? I mean, how do we deal with all this? Well, this is what we're dealing with. That's why we're here. <laughs> and believe me, I'm not advocating smoking. But we have the glory of God. We have biblical mandates. We have biblical principles. And then we have personal convictions, which may or may not be regulated by biblical mandates and principles. It just may be, you know, some other thing. But we have convictions. We have convictions. And what you need to realize is this, is that as a believer, you have to live your life and it's not all about you and what you want and what you can get away with. The scriptures tell you to regard other people as more important than yourself. And the fact is we live in a culture where the bulk of people in society have been trained that Christianity is a certain way, not because the Bible says so, but because Hollywood has told us over and over again. For instance, I come up here and, uh, and I'm wearing flip flops and old raggedy cutoffs and, you know, one of my white t-shirts with a bunch of paint stains on it. I want you to know I can preach the same sermon. I mean, I might even be faster with, you know, shorts on. It wouldn't affect my delivery any. It wouldn't make me forget what I know. It wouldn't hinder me in my communication skills or what I know of the scriptures. But I'm telling you this. It would hinder the reception of the message in many of your minds. Many of you would not be able to hear me if I came up here and I was wearing shorts and flip-flops. You would not be able to, you would, you would just lose respect for me. And I would be hindering the word of God and I would be harming your conscience because of the way I dress. I can't do that. And so what do I do? Well, I look in the congregation and I say, okay, in a congregation this size, we have some people who, who are, you know, very, very, concerned about how you dress there are some people you know one of the things i, I think is neat is um when i'm driving around and uh i go by the these schools uh, i forget which school it is anyways there's uh, a whole bunch of older armenian men who are out there playing backgammon on these these benches by this school and they're always wearing sports coats button-up shirts slacks nice shoes to play backgammon in the park you know to me that's overkill but not for them okay but you know what? Some people have this conviction and it may be based off of the Old Testament and how the priests were to w- w- dress or whatever or out of just general respect or whatever that when you come up here, man, you have to show honor. You have to show respect to God. And what that means for you is that you dress nice. Well, I know that. 
I know some of you wouldn't really care what I wore up here as long as, you know, I was covered up. But other of you have this conviction. So what am I going to do? Well, I'm going to dress like this and wear the noose (laughs) so that it doesn't hinder the delivering of the word of God. Now, those of you who don't care, don't care if I wear a suit. Those of you who do care, you're fine. And everybody in between is fine. So I try to meet the highest standard to be all things to all men. I I just found out this week from one of the elders that the reason ties were invented is because buttons were immodest. So they developed ties to cover up our immodesty. So there. So, hey, you know, I, Mike, you know, I had this discussion with my kids a while. Why do we wear ties? I, said, I don't know. Somebody started it and I'm just following through. You know, I don't know. <laughs> it's the thing to do. So I'm doing it. Okay. And that's fine. I'm fine with that. That's good. But see, as you grow in the Lord, you should be thinking less and less about you and what you want and what you think and what you feel and what you want to have and more and more about other people and how you can encourage them and motivate them and whatever. Apart from that, we live in a society, a culture that has been trained that certain things are wrong for Christians to do. And, you know, we can do these things, but we need to ask ourselves, why? Why even run the risk? And, you know, that principle can go a long way. I mean, you know, am I not going to drive a car and use a computer because some Amish people think back east that, you know, technology should not be used? Well, no. Well, then why not do the San Fernando Boulevard thing with the leather and the cigar and the beer? See, see, this is the this is what we're going to be talking about in the next week. So in next week, as we show up, what we're going to be doing is we're going to first start off the fifth category, which leads to the dark side, the dark side of where personal convictions go and run amok. And that is legalism. And one other motivating factor, which is just pure selfishness, greed, and pride. So we'll address those. Then we'll start looking at scriptures that address Christian liberties and how to regulate them. Then we'll try to set up a paradigm that you can say, well, I'm thinking of doing something. And why would I or would I not do this? And how does this relate to loving God and loving other people? And uh, that's where we're headed. So let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for just our time this morning. It is fun and yet uh, sometimes scary to be talking about our Christian liberties, especially in a room like this where there are so many people with so many backgrounds and so many experiences and so many weaknesses and so many different levels of Christian maturity. But Father, I pray that most of all, we would all look into your word diligently, that we would sort through the scriptures and we would live our lives according to your word that we would do it for your glory by loving you directly and by loving others. That, Father, we would never do anything or engage in any practice that would hinder somebody else's reception of the word, the gospel, uh, their walk with you, and do anything, as Paul says, which might make my brother stumble. So, Father, help us to sort through the many scriptures, the mandates and principles involved. And, Father, as we do this, may our church give you glory. May we stay away from legalism and selfish indulgence and yet hold to your word and encourage and build one another up in Christ. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.